All right, do you have your Bibles this morning? If you do, please go ahead and open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today's text is going to unlock hope and strength for us like almost nothing else can. We're talking about the resurrection again this morning. Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. Paul says this, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I recently watched a new documentary that National Geographic produced with Chris Hemsworth. 
Uh, if you don't know who Chris Hemsworth is, he is the actor of Thor from all of the Avenger movies. If you don't know who Thor is from the Avenger movies, just look at me and you're gonna get a pretty good idea <laughs> of who Chris Hemsworth is. The body of a, of a Greek god. This new documentary is called Limitless. It is all about how we can unlock our body's superpowers to fight illness, to perform better, and to fight the aging process. Now, it's a little bit silly because Chris Hemsworth and me are no ordinary humans. He really is a beast. He's a beast both in his physical strength but also with his financial resources. He's able to do things in the documentary that are simply not available for the average person. Most of us will just will never be anything like Chris Hemsworth. But it was still a fascinating documentary. Hemsworth begins by saying that as strong as he feels at the age of 39, I'm 39 too, by the way, <laughs> basically the same person. He said as strong as he feels, he knows the clock is ticking on his life and that he wants to do whatever he can to live as long and as full a life as possible. And so Hemsworth teams up with six of the most successful longevity experts on the planet. They talk about the physical benefits of things like fasting, and they talk about breathing techniques to lower anxiety and to lower stress levels. They talk about the physical benefits of cryotherapy or extreme exposure to cold. They talk about exercising our minds to keep them sharp and to fight against dementia in old age. All of it, very helpful, very fascinating, things that we probably all should consider and benefit from to whatever degree. But here's the thing, no matter what longevity practices we exercise, we're still gonna die. It's just a matter of fact. And it's actually uh, fascinating in the documentary how much they talk about death. The whole last episode is about dying. Chris Hemsworth has to live four days as an elderly person in a retirement home and they walk him through preparing for his own death. So in a sense, I, I appreciate how honest they are about how these longevity practices can't really stop the reality of death. It's good that they say that. But it's also very stark how they talked about death. In that last episode, Chris Hemsworth talks about death as a very fearful thing because it is so uncertain, he says. He describes the idea of death as just kind of a, a poof into nothingness. There's suddenly you're gone, like really gone, he says, forever. And as you listen to him talk, you begin to realize that all of their efforts to, to lengthen life, all of their efforts to unlock our body's superpowers, all of it is because they believe that they only have so much time to live, period. They believe that they have only a set amount of time and then there's nothing. And so they better get everything they can out of their lives before the nothingness begins. And even though they try to be very peaceful about the nothingness, it really is just their attempt to reckon with the end of life without any hope of a future. And friends, if that is true, you should all be bitter that you're not a little bit more like Chris Hemsworth, a little stronger, a little more fit, a little bit more able to get much out of life. Why has fate given you the life that you have? But my friends, Hemsworth's understanding of the future is not our understanding of the future, amen? 
I actually found myself praying for him and for, the, for the, those who produced the documentary as I watched it, that they would come to see and understand the hope that there is in Jesus Christ because of his resurrection over the grave. Because friends, the, the ultimate way to unlock our body and our soul's superpower is not to live as if the end is coming and then there is no more. No, the ultimate way to unlock our superpower is to stare at death and to know that because of Jesus and the empty grave, death is not the end of the story. We will live on. The main idea here this morning is that the resurrection changes how we view the future and how we live in the present. The resurrection changes how we view the future and how we live in the present. And we have three points from this text. Point number one, saying Jesus is not raised. Point number two, believing Jesus is raised. And point number three, waking up to the resurrection. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, saying Jesus is not raised. We, we need to understand the context for these verses. Why is Paul talking to the Corinthian Christians about this, particularly at the end of this long letter? Well, throughout 1 Corinthians, we have seen how the Corinthian Christians seem to have an over-realized eschatology. They, They seem to believe that they are so victorious in Jesus that they couldn't be touched by sin or the effects of sin anymore. They they thought they were so victorious in Jesus that sin was no longer a factor in their life and we know that that led to chaos in their lives. But there seems to be more here than just an over-realized eschatology. Though their sense of victory was very strong and present in this life, it did not seem to extend into their understanding of the afterlife. It seems like the Corinthians were still thinking about death and the future in a very secular, even unbiblical way. See, see, in that day, in the Greco-Roman world, dualism would have been very, very common. Dualism is the belief that the the spirit of a person is what is valuable and important and eternal, but that our physical bodies are really evil and pointless, not eternal and disposable. And, And this secular perspective often led people to not care what they did with their bodies because if our bodies are not eternal, if they're just disposable, who cares what happens to them, right? And you can see how dangerous that perspective is. We have seen that danger throughout this letter. The Corinthian Christians do not care about practical godliness. They didn't care about relational unity together. They didn't care about sexual immorality. They didn't care about divorce. They didn't care about idol worship. They didn't care because according to their beliefs, these things would not last forever. Only their souls would last forever. And so we now begin to understand why Paul, at the end of this long letter of instruction, ends with 58 glorious verses about the gospel and the resurrection in chapter 15. He knows that if we are going to live the lives that God has called us and instructed us to live, church, we must rightly understand how God views this physical world and our physical bodies. And so look with me at verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
you can see the word if seven times in these verses 12 to 19. Paul is speaking hypothetically. He's, he's doing a mental exercise with the Corinthians of what it would be like if the Corinthians' perspective on these things was correct. Paul does a, a hypothetical contrast between the gospel and the resurrection, which he proclaims in verses 1 to 11, and with the Corinthians and what they were saying. He, he's trying to highlight how, how to deny our physical resurrection, as they were saying, is directly contrary to the gospel that we proclaim. Why? Well, because if Jesus' physical body was not raised from the grave, if it is still in the tomb, if it has still experienced the pain of death, which is the greatest consequence of sin in this world, then it means that sin has still won. If, if Jesus' body is still in the grave, then the gospel has accomplished nothing for us because death, the ultimate consequence of our sin, has stolen the life of Christ and the lives of all of God's people who have died. According to Paul, to deny physical resurrection for ourselves and for Christ is to deny the gospel. It's to throw our entire Christian faith up in the air. Why? Because our biggest problem remains. Death is still with us. Look at what it says in verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, according to them, that the dead are not raised. But Paul is saying that, that if there is no resurrection, then our preaching here on Sunday morning is pointless. Why are we even here? Let's go get lunch. We claim to have hope, but there really is no hope. We claim to have life, but really that life is just an illusion because death is still going to win. And if that's true, oh, we are gutting ourselves of our greatest source of hope and confidence and joy. And Paul says, Paul says that we as Christians in this world, if we believe all these things, we are most to be pitied. We are most to be pitied. The world should have pity on us because we are denying so many physical pleasures in this world out of our allegiance, out of our love for Jesus. We are saying no to the world and yes to godliness, all out of a pursuit of the ultimate pleasure of a life with Christ. But if that life with Christ never happens, church, if after we die we rot and decay, then what the heck are we doing here today? Why are we not just trying to find all of the pleasure that we can before we kick the bucket? It makes no sense to try to live a pure and godly life if there is no resurrection to look forward to. But Paul's whole point is to show how absurd this is. This is why he uses the word if so many times. This is just a hypothetical idea for Paul. It's, it's not reality. Up in verse 4, he says that Jesus was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. And Paul indicates in that that the resurrection of Christ from the dead was a clear promise and expectation from the Scriptures from the very beginning of when God started writing this story. And this is so true. Listen, even though, even though it's a little more veiled than all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the atonement and about the cross. Even though 
we can't do what we did last week and look back and see the sacrificial system and the Passover and the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and all the other prophecies about sacrifice which really look forward to the cross. Even though we can't do it as much in that way about the resurrection, we still know that this was the long-awaited result of God's plan. Genesis chapter one, we see God create a physical world with physical bodies. Our bodies are not bad or evil, they're very good. Immediately after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God promises a physical descendant who would save them from their sins. In Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham was willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice, which last week we saw as a picture of the atonement, The writer of Hebrews says that he was able to do that because he believed that God was even able to raise him from the dead. So from the very beginning, the people of God believed in God's resurrection power over the grave. Jesus himself spoke of himself as being buried in the ground like Jonah was buried in the belly of the whale for three days, but then was delivered. Listen to this prophecy from Hosea. Hosea says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. There are are hints and clues of God's plan to resurrect his son and his people throughout all of scripture. And so listen, to deny the resurrection, to say that Jesus is not raised, is to deny the gospel in all of God's word. God has always planned to redeem our physical bodies from sin and death. And so as Christians today, we must not say, we must not live as if our bodies do not matter. We must not live as if this physical world is just evil. No, the heavens declare the glory of God and our bodies do as well. And so application here is that we must not view our bodies as evil or as irrelevant. And first of all, God has called us towards personal holiness. Paul says in chapter seven of 1 Corinthians that our physical bodies are the temple of God. We must honor the Lord with our physical bodies. He's made them for himself. But second, we need to remember that that God has designed our specific bodies in the way that he has for his glory. Friend, your body is designed by the Lord and he has good and eternal purposes for it despite its many weaknesses and shortcomings. I just had a sense as I was preparing this message this week that there are some here today who in a particular way this week have been frustrated with their bodies, frustrated with its weakness, frustrated even with its appearance. And I I don't know exactly in what way, but I believe the Lord wants to encourage you by reminding you that he made your body and that he loves you and he's gonna use you and your weak body to bring him glory and honor. We must not say that, that Jesus is not raised from the dead. And that brings us to point number two, believing Jesus is raised. Look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Gone are the ifs in what he's saying. 
Paul is no longer speaking in hypotheticals. No, now he is speaking in facts. But in fact, he says, this is not a question for Paul. It is factual. He has seen Jesus alive. He knows of 500 eyewitnesses who have seen Jesus alive. And so Paul is emphatic towards us this morning. Jesus is no longer in the grave. But listen, this is not just historical fact for Paul. No, this is also an eschatological promise for Paul. That means it's a promise about our future. Look at what he says next. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There are two things we need to notice about verse 20. Number one is the phrase, those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? Well, that is Scripture's way of speaking of God's people who have died. Those who have fallen asleep according to God's word are those who have died, those who have passed on, but who have hope of a future resurrection because of their faith in King Jesus. Yes, they have died. Yes, they've passed away. But because of the eschatological promise that we have about the future, it's as if they've just fallen asleep. They're going to wake up again. When I go home later this afternoon and I sleep on the couch for my nap, I might look like I'm dead, but my family's not going to start preparing for my funeral. They're not going to mourn for my loss. Why? Because they know I'm going to wake up in just a few short minutes. That's what it's like for those who believe in Jesus and pass away. And we know this because Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the second part. What do we need to know about the, the term first fruits? It means the first installment of a future reality. In the Old Testament, first fruits spoke of the first gathering of the harvest, which spoke of more harvest to come. It was a down payment of sorts. First fruits speaks of a foretaste of what is to come. Think about Christmas cookies with me for a minute, okay? I don't know what your home smelled like this week, but mine smelled really good. Ashley and the kids have been baking, and it has been wonderful. But you, you know that moment when the person baking gives you a clump of the cookie dough, right? I often don't wait for it to be given. I go and take it. But, but that cookie dough is a first fruit of what is to come. It is a sweet experience, but it's speaking of more that is on its way. And oftentimes I have second and third fruits as well, but that's beside the point. The rest of the cookies are coming. When Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's saying that his resurrection is the first bright glimmer in the darkness. It's the first sweet taste. It is the first joyful experience of the ultimate harvest which is still to come. His resurrection is a guarantee that more life is on its way. Jesus' resurrection is the first installment of a global resurrection for his people. More life is coming. More empty graves are going to be there. And friends, this is such good news because sin and death have ruined everything, haven't they? Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that this world is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. We feel the effects of sin every day that we live. Look at verse 21 here. It says, for as in Adam all die, sin brings death. 
Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings pain. This is our reality. Since Adam and Eve fell into sin, you and I and every human that has lived was born into a fallen and sin-sick world. Adam's likeness is our likeness. The image of the first man, Adam, is our image. And listen, it's not a good image. It's a bad image. It's a weak and rebellious and condemned image. And it's all of our image. It's the image of the entire world. For in Adam, all die. Christian, your, your pride, that's because you were born into Adam. Your lust, that's because you were born in Adam's likeness. Your anger, that's Adam too. Your cancer, that's a fruit of Adam's sin. When you stub your toe and it feel that pain, when you can't get out of the darkness of depression, that's because you and this, this whole world are stuck in the very image of our first father, Adam. All of life, all of this world is marked by sin and death. It's all around us and it's all over us. Scripture says that Adam was our representative head. He stood on behalf of us. And in him and in his sin, all this world is now groaning and moaning in the pain and sorrow of sin and death. And we can't even really just put it all on Adam because we've all sinned likewise since. But look at what it says in verse 21. For as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, listen church, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam was our representative head in sin and death, but Christ is our representative head in righteousness and in life. Amen? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For if because of one man's trespass, speaking about Adam, Death reigned through that one man. Much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. But by man came death. And so what did our faithful, loving, merciful God do? He sent his son to become a man like us, a new representative head. Listen, the baby in the manger is the descendant of Eve, a son of Adam. He is the second Adam. Friends, listen, Christmas is all about resurrection power. This is why we sing Christmas carols. Not just because Christmas is a warm and fuzzy story that we enjoy. Not just because Jesus was a good example to follow. Not even only because Jesus died on the cross. Listen, if he only died on the cross, we would have nothing to sing about. No, we celebrate Christmas because the baby in the manger was put on the cross and then he came running out of the grave. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It, this world, because of what he's done, is no longer going from sorrow to more sorrow or from more death to more death. No, when he came running out of that grave, he reversed the trajectory of our lives and of this world. And so listen, pain, physical pain, chronic pain, and sorrow, relational sorrow, situational sorrow, divorce, infertility, cancer, joblessness, sleeplessness, death itself. They may still happen to us, 
but they cannot hold us down. We live with hope. We are, as Paul says, sorrowful because we feel the weight of these things. Jesus himself wept when Lazarus died, but we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Why? Because of the second Adam's ultimate victory over sin and death. Yes, we feel the weight of sin and death, but we sing because the ultimate sting of death has been removed. We sing Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Listen to these words. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. It says, come, desire of nations, come. Come, Jesus, fix in us thy humble home. Live among us, live with us. Listen, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Jesus has come to erase the stain of death and to stamp the image of life in its place. Amen? Now sadly, that does not happen right away. Right? Even though we have eschatological hope for the future, the future is not yet here. We have to endure, and we have to endure through many dangers, toils, and snares. Look, look at verse 23. Paul says, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says there's an order to these things. Jesus' resurrection comes first, and then later, sadly, it seems much later, those who belong to Christ will be raised with him. What does that mean? It means that we still live in this sin-sick and sin-broken world, but we do so with joyful hope in what is going to come. This is not a hypothetical optimism for the Christian. This is eschatological promises grounded in historical realities. Those who are in Christ will rise to life with Christ. Jesus will have the victory. In verses 24 to 28, Paul says in unmistakable terms that when the end comes, we will see every enemy under the foot of King Jesus. All things evil will be in subjection to him. All enemies defeated by him. Every evil will meet justice. Every pain will be healed. Every cancer cell will be banished. Every chronic illness removed. Every example of dementia done away with. Every war will cease. Every fear and anxiety taken away forever. Listen, some of you are those who struggle a great deal with anxiety and fear. I can relate. Do you struggle with fear? Do you, do you have anxiety? Do you have panic attacks? I think in our day there's a really a pandemic of fear and anxiety all around us. We, we struggle with fear and anxiety because life seems out of control and the future seems so uncertain. Listen, if you are one who struggles with fear and anxiety, the resurrection is for you. It's for you this morning because the resurrection proves that as un, out of control as the world seems, as uncertain as the future seems, Jesus has everything under control, even death itself. Believing Jesus is raised, it changes everything, church. If you're anxious, let not your heart be troubled this morning. Believe in him. Believe in his resurrection. That brings us to point number three. 
waking up to the resurrection. Do you want to hear a crazy story? About 17 years ago, when I first became a pastor, I think I was 22 years old, I was asked to do my first funeral ever, which is never an easy thing to do, but it was a really hard situation. I was, it was a 19-year-old student who had overdosed on drugs and died. The funeral was going to be attended by hundreds of people, many of them high school and college students. And as a brand new pastor, I was, I was pretty overwhelmed by it all. It was not an easy situation, but, but I did my best. I prayed and I prepared. During the service, I, I spoke briefly from Psalm 90 about the brevity of life and how we need God to help us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom and begin to live not only for this life, but for the next life. But as I was concluding, a woman loudly interrupted me in front of everyone there. She grabbed the mic and she started contradicting everything that I was saying. She started yelling about how this young man who was her nephew should have thought about this life here on earth as his only life. That if he had focused on this life more, this one life, then he would have made different decisions for himself. After the funeral, she and her husband took me to the back of the funeral home where all of the caskets were and they started screaming at me for having preached the gospel. I really thought they were going to kill me and put me in one of those caskets. I was backing up very slowly. It was an intense situation. But as I thought about it later, I was affected by what happened. They were so angry with me because I was trying to help these young people to think about more than just their earthly life. I wanted them to hear God's call to live for more than just this world. But they thought that I was being careless with all of these students' lives. They thought to have them focus on the spiritual was to ignore the opportunity to live their best life now. But they didn't realize how contradictory their perspective was. Listen, if there was nothing more that than this life for this young man to live for. If there was no life after death, it's, it's hard to say, but, but the young man died well. He died well because he was partying, he was eating and drinking and being merry, he was finding pleasure, and his early death spared him from pain in life later on. But what they didn't realize was that to believe in the resurrection, to number our days here on earth, and to focus on the hope of the resurrection is not to do away with the importance of this life. It is to infuse this life today with all kinds of meaning and power and purpose. It has the power to change us right here and right now. Believing in a future resurrection has the power to transform how you live your short time here on this earth. And so according to Paul, we must wake up from our drunken stupor. We must wake up to the resurrection. Paul ends this section in verses 29 to 34 by speaking about how the resurrection has the power to change the way that we live. Now, unhelpfully, I say, Paul starts in verse 29 with what is a very confusing verse. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What is that? We don't know exactly what Paul says here or what he means here. One option is that he's talking about 
just normal baptism that we experience on Sunday mornings. Basically, he could be saying, if the resurrection is not true in your minds, why are you even being baptized? Why, why do you claim to be Christian and why are you being baptized if in reality you have no resurre- re- resurrection hope? Why are you baptized if in reality you're still dead in your trespasses and sins? I really think that might be what Paul is saying here. Another option is that he is speaking to an unhelpful and an unbiblical practice of some in the church who had been baptized in order to earn favor for somebody who had died before, not unlike the Mormon belief that says that you can be baptized for your dead uncle and and earn favor before God for him. Paul is emphatically not saying that. He's not agreeing with that because that's directly contrary to the gospel of grace. But it could be that Paul is is not looking to correct that in the moment, but he's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why are you even bothering with this faulty practice? All that to say, I have no idea what he means. (laughs) But what Paul is doing here is he is trying to suggest why we as Christians are who we are, why we are able to do what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? He says, I die every day. He says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. Paul is saying that he was able to do all that he did in ministry, and we are able to do all that we are called to do as Christians because of our confidence in the resurrection. Paul's point is to say, why are we living in danger every hour? Why do we fight against evil in this world? Why do we fight against the sin of our own hearts? Why do we wage war against pornography? Why do we fight to love our spouse well every day, dying to ourselves? Why do we serve in the church every week? Why are we willing to stand out as weird Christians in a secular world? Why do we give generously instead of hoarding our possessions for ourselves? Why do we confess sin to each other and ask for forgiveness as awkward as that is? Why do we seek to surround ourselves with the people of God rather than only with bad company? Why do we seek to stop sinning? Why? Why do we seek to glorify God in every area of our lives? Where do these superpowers come from? Where does this conviction come from? Why do we do this even while we could sit back and relax and chill? Paul says we do so because of the resurrection. We do so because of a far greater pleasure than this life or this world can offer us. We endure all things because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We endure all things because of the eschatological promise of a far greater delight and happiness and pleasure that is to come. So church, let us wake up from our drunken stupor. Let us take our eyes off of the world there is a treasure of far greater value. Take your eyes off of the temporary things. Now, are the temporary things bad? No, God, God made this world, and it is for our good and for our joy and for our pleasure, but we must not put our hope in those things. We must keep our eyes on our God, who is, according to verse 28, all in all. All of the physical pleasure that we have in this world, all of the the presence under the tree, it's all just a reminder of the ultimate gift which God is himself. 
God desires us to enjoy the greatest pleasure in this world, and that will not happen by focusing on this world. It will happen when we focus on the one who reigns over this world with resurrection power. Chris Hemsworth was all about unlocking our body's superpowers for longevity. He wanted to live as long as possible. My friend, I cannot promise you longevity of life on this earth. I cannot promise that you will live even to the end of this day, but I can promise you eternal life. Life everlasting in the new heaven and the new earth where pain and sorrow will be no more, where we will feast together and laugh together and work together and sing together and spend all of eternity together with physical resurrected bodies enjoying God's good creation in the presence of God and with him as our all in all. May God enable us to see and believe out this, live out this resurrection power this Christmas season. Let's pray.